welcome back to another episode of Angler's Account. I'm your host, Brenna McCubrey, and I'm very appreciative of everybody who is listening right now because it's been about a month since episode one was launched. So thank you for tuning back in. Thank you for coming back to hear what I have to say and what my guests have to say. I can promise you this one and all that are to come will be worth it. In this episode, I spoke with Janet Massinio of Martha's Vineyard. She moved to the island at the age of 18 and went from waitressing at the Black Dog to becoming local surf casting legend. She's well known around the world for her taxidermy and her soon to be published memoir that will be coming out June 2019. Now, unfortunately, I couldn't meet Janet in person and due to that and my lack of techie skills, the interview you are about to hear may sound a bit rough. But before we get into our phone conversation with Janet, I want to thank Douglas Outdoors for sponsoring this podcast. Douglas Outdoors is a family-oriented company dedicated to providing anglers with superior strength, accuracy, and sensitivity through their line of award-winning fly rods, casting rods, and float rods. Douglas Outdoors was formed with the true angler in mind by teaming up with industry leaders in design and engineering to develop fishing equipment with a fresh approach to the market. You can check them out at douglasoutdoors.com and follow them on Instagram. If you're into fly fishing, you can follow them on Instagram at Douglas Outdoors. And if you're more of a conventional fisherman, check them out at Douglas underscore fishing underscore rods. Now let's dive right in to episode two. I'm going to guess 1977 or 78, and um, I met a guy named Jack Kino. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, and uh, he took me under his wing and taught me how to read the water and fish for striped bass. That's something that you now share with a lot of people with your guide service. Um, how did that evolve? How did you create a service that you were able to teach everybody about um, what to tie in your line, how to read the wind, the tide charts? How did that evolve? Well, because I love to fish, I was working in the restaurant business, and in 1987, I went to school to become a taxidermist, and so I was doing fish taxidermy, and um, I I started guiding only about 10 years ago uh, as I, we raised a special needs child, so he came to us in the early 90s, and I, people would ask me if I would take them fishing, you know, for quite a few years, because you know, when you do something long enough, people think you're an expert. Right. So people would ask me, you know, uh, my friends would say, oh, you should guide. But I couldn't do it as long as I had a child, you know. Right. And he was a special child, so I couldn't. If he didn't want me to go fishing, I wasn't going to go fishing. So once he left home, um, you know, and went went on his way to go to college and all that, then I decided to um, become a guide. And well, I did two different things. When I got, when I was a guide, I would actually take people fishing, and of course, I would teach along the way. But we would go looking for fish, and then um, I, I did workshops where I would spend, and I'm still doing that. I did one the other day. I spend like three hours with a small group of people, and we learn to tie knots and cast the different uh, lures. Um, you know, the different retrieves, how to read a tide chart. We talk about the wind. And the reason I do that is because if it wasn't for Jackie, I spent years 
you know how many fish I lost because I couldn't tie a good knot? <laughs> you know? So just learning those basics, you know. But I'm not guiding anymore. This is the first year in uh, 10 years that I decided not to guide. Uh, it was wearing me out. So guiding, but the, the preparation, you know, when you fish from the shore, I had to have so many rods together and, you know, mostly novices I was taking, and uh, it was a lot of work. So from guiding from the shore and being on a boat, what do you think the biggest differences are um, in that kind of service? The boat people, well, for one thing, the boat people, they can go from spot to spot to spot. Right. You know, and they got all their gear right there, and, um, you know, they can travel. They can go look for fish. From the shore, I got to, you know, I'll hit a couple of different spots, but, um, you know, mostly I took people to Chappie because, uh, you know, that's one of our only driving beaches. So from the shore, I had to really, you know, make sure I knew that I could get fish somewhere. And you know what? From the, the difference is, on a boat, they catch fish all the time. And people would call me and say, I really got to catch a fish. You know, will you take me fishing? And I'd say, well, if, if that's your main goal, then maybe you should charter a boat, which is a lot more expensive than from the shore. You know, right. the boat crowd is probably six or eight hundred dollars, where the shore I was charging maybe two fifty or three hundred. From the shore, it's more like let's enjoy a sunset, let's enjoy a ride on the beach, and yes, I'm going to try everything I can to catch a fish. You know, help you catch a fish, but it may not happen. I was lucky enough. You know, my ten years of guiding, we very rarely got skunked. <laughs> but uh, awesome. you know, on the boat, yeah, on the boat, they very rarely get skunked because. You know, they have much a lot more mobility. And that's something my dad has taught me is just to enjoy and absorb everything about fishing. Yeah. We didn't yeah. grow up with a boat. We fished from the shore. Um, and he's actually the one that told me to reach out to you. He met you while fishing off of Chappie a few years ago. And yeah. that's a place that my family and I go to every summer. Yeah. Um, and it's mainly bass and blues that we do catch. What have you seen from the Chappie Coast and from around Martha's Vineyard? from the shore other than bass and blue? Well, um, right now, there's some bonita showing up, which is kind of exciting. There's false albacore you can catch from the shore. And the big thing the last few years, and um, it was happening about 20 years ago, is the brown shock. I read your most recent article you shared with me on the MV Times, and you broke it down into the different species that are most popular in the summer months. Fall's now in our calendar. It's September. So what are the kind of things that people might be seeing? Well, you know, in my fish column, I just said the brown shock have disappeared and, you know, the bass and the bluefish are starting to show up. Well, I just found out the other day that the guys are going to Chappie and they're landing like six shock a night oh, per wow. group. You know, so the shocks are back like gangbusters. So they catch them at night? Well, you can sometimes catch browns in the day, but mostly in, in you know, in the evening into the night. But you can catch them during the day, too. When the browns are so thick, it's a little bit more difficult. Like, I was at Chappie today for five, six hours. It was a beautiful tie. I was hoping maybe some bonito would come by, but um, that didn't happen. But one guy uh, caught, this guy named Gary, caught um, one bluefish right at the end of the tide, and that was it. And I was there two days ago with my friend Lisa, and one guy caught one 10-pound bluefish, and that was it. Wow. You know, so the fishing has not been fabulous. Um, I'm, of course, I'm not fishing daybreak either, 
So um, the chances of catching a bonito at daybreak are, are better than in the middle of the day. You're saying the fishing hasn't been superb lately. How do you think the fishing has evolved from when you grew up in the vineyard to now? Oh, well, like I said, in the 70s, you could go to Wasky Point any time over. I could fish the jetties, the bridges, and the bluefish were just plentiful. And every time I went out fishing, I was always prepared that I could catch a 50-pound bass. I've never caught a 50. I've caught two 45s and many 40s and 30-pound bass. Um, you know, now you're lucky to find, a you know, a 20-pound bass. We used to get a migration of striped bass, so we started fishing in the early spring to get that spring migration, the bass coming up from down south, following the bait, and coming along the shore, you know, along Martha's Vineyard, and there was always chances of catching a big fish, and these migrating fish were really hungry. And then summertime would kind of slow down when the water temperature get got warm. The bigger fish would move out into deeper, colder water, the boats did well, but we didn't do as well from the shore. Then, like now, when the water temperature started to drop a little bit and the fish started to migrate going down south, you know, we'd get the spring migration of bass. That doesn't seem to happen really anymore. Because I would, I fish until Thanksgiving, and usually after the derby, the bigger fish would come around, but it's not so much, you know? Now, what's that derby you speak of? Oh, the der- oh, you don't know about the Derby? This is the 73rd annual Martha's Vineyard Strike Bass and Bluefish Derby. This is the 73rd annual year. It started in 1946. A group of um, island businessmen got together, and they wanted to attract people to come to the island in the off-season, you know, to rent hotel rooms, uh, go to the store, you know, bring for the economy 73 years ago. Now the Derby has, it's the biggest tournament, and it's, it used to be a bass tournament, striped bass only. They added bluefish back in the 40s, but nobody really cared who caught the bluefish. It was all about the striped bass. So the Derby was all more about the guys who stayed up all night fishing for bass. Now, since um, the early 80s, they've added Benita and False Albacore. So now it's an all-inclusive derby. You can fish in the middle of the night for striped bass and bluefish. You can fish all day for Benita and False Albacore. We've got a, we still only have about 10% women. Last year we had 3,800 participants. People come from all over the world to join the derby. What are the fees to get into that derby? Believe it or not, it's only $35, and that's for the whole month. You can. Um, if, the only difference is if you want to uh, fish just fly rod, they have a special fly rod pin, but that's still only $35. Well, no, you know what? I'm wrong. It's not $35 because I'm a senior. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, it's $60. You know, don't call me on that. It could be 60 or $65, but that um, that's the whole derby. That's a five-week derby, all four species. You can fish from the shore. You can jump on a boat if you want. Um, you know, in that one button, you can fish wherever you want within the boundaries. It starts September 9th, and it ends this year, October 13th. Major prizes are a boat and a truck. Wow. Yeah. Those are major. So I'm surprised the fee is so small. I just tell everybody, you've got me 11 months out of the year during the derby. Leave me alone. 
that. Every sunrise, every sunset, and uh, the only problem is the Benita uh, driving me crazy. See, we have something called a Grand Slam, and the theory is anybody can catch that one biggest fish. Ed Jerome, who's the president of the Derby, he ruined my life. He said, you know, but the real fishermen are the ones that can win the Grand Slam. That means all four species and the most poundage in those, you know, for all four species. The problem is I took second Grand Slam, um, I think 1998, uh, and it had never been another woman on the, on the slam board. Jen Beauregard, uh, I think she took second Grand Slam a few years ago. So now there's been two of us. But I just wanted to take first place Grand Slam being a woman once in my life. But I don't know. Now that I'm 70 and the Bonita have been really scarce, you have to have all four species. I haven't caught a Bonita in 19 years. Wow. Oh, not because not because I don't know how to catch them. It's because they, they've been scarce. In the Derby records, one year there was one Bonita caught from the shore. Another year there was 11 caught from the shore. Last year we had a pretty good year. I think there was 100 or so caught from the shore. And this year they're here. So I'm hoping, I don't know. But once the Albies got so thick, I think it's the Albies that chase them away from the shoreline and they go out into deeper waters. Boats have no problem getting them. Right. It's our shore people. <laughs> but I don't know. You know, it's been a dream. I don't know. I need to change my dream because my dream has become a nightmare. You know, when I fish this derby all month long, I just want to, I just want to fish it. It doesn't, I don't really think about the end result. I, I just want to fish the best derby that I can fish. It's, it's, I'm so lucky. I mean, how fortunate am I to live on an island? It doesn't matter what the weather is, which way the wind's blowing. I can always find fish, you know? Maybe not the biggest fish, but I can find fish. Growing up on Martha's Vineyard and really fishing every nook and cranny, have there ever been another place that you enjoy fishing or you explored and you enjoy it as much as the vineyard? <laughs> you know, really- I... I wish I was that worldly. There's some, you know, a lot of the young people now, they fish Belize and, you know, bone fishing and tropical islands. And, you know, um, well, you know, I told you we adopted a special needs kid, so I was really homebound for about 19 years. And, of course, running a business. My husband also runs a business. So we just started doing a little bit of traveling. I, I got to fish in Costa Rica for a couple of weeks. Um, didn't do too good. Yeah, I did well on a boat, but, you know, I'm a shore fisherman. Um, I've been down to Cabo San Lucas. That was fun. I got lucky and caught a 36-inch Sierra mackerel. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. That that had nothing to do with skill. That was just luck. I was actually looking for a, a rooster fish. But really, I haven't had a lot of experience. You know, people say, where have you fished in the world? It's like, well, I've been to Oak Bluffs and Gay Head and Chappaquiddick. And, you know. I love it. <laughs> Do you ever spend much time on Cape Cod fishing? I don't. My mother lives in Brewster. Okay. Um, I got to fish the canal. I have a friend, Charlie Sinto. He's now in his upper 80s. He caught a 73-pound striped bass in 1967. It's an unofficial world record. He caught it on a boat off of Cuddy Hunk. Met at a sportsman show about 20 years ago. Became really tight friends, and he's come and fished here on the island with me. And uh, he fishes the canal. He's been fishing the canal for like 65 years. And I went off a couple of years and go and fish the canal with Charlie. He lives in Plymouth. 
He gets up around 3 o'clock, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning, drives from Plymouth to the canal. Now, he knows that canal like I know the island. You know, he knows the tides. He knows exactly what rock he wants to stand on. (laughs) So he goes down. He's fishing the canal. This was like two years ago. And the sun starts coming up, and the crowd comes. So some guy gets really close to him, a young guy. And, the guy, you know, Charlie says, could you just move over a little bit, buddy? I got a bad shoulder. And the guy looked at him and said, oh, why don't you just go home, old man? Oh, and my goodness. So, you know, the, I'm not saying everybody that fishes the canal is bad guys. But look at they get, you look at the bad guys that fish there. They, they cull fish. You know, the EP finally went down and stopped them. They slaughter these fish. You know, it's about greed. I don't want to fish in a crowd like that. Right. So, and I mean, I don't mean to ruin the reputation because there are those canal fishermen that do the right thing. But, yeah, I'm, that's not, to me, that's not fishing. I don't want to go down there and get, you know, aggravated that to watch people taking more fishing than they're supposed to and being mean to each other. It's it's terrible, you know. And, you know, I'm not saying everybody that fishes the canal is like that, but that's what's going on there. And, you know, years ago we used to have, there was no Internet. You know, we used to have to go find fish. Now with the Internet and cell phones, when the pot of fish comes by, everybody's on the cell phone. These guys can drive from Rhode Island to the canal in a few hours, you right. know. So everybody gets in on the slaughter. I don't know. You know, I'm an old, I'm an old person, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's really unfortunate, but you make a very good point. And um, the migration maps are accessible to anybody who – has a phone or is able to get on the internet, they don't right. really do the research or know the species um, right. on their own, but right. they're just able to see when they're here. Right. And the reason those fish are in the canal is because they have the bait. And that's when, you know, I told, I, did I tell you I, I have a book coming out? I wanted to ask about that. Without giving any of it away, I, I did want to ask you about the book. Is that something you are writing or you're working with? Oh, no. I, I, wrote, I wrote the book. I got picked up by a big publisher, Kanoff. I guess it's going to be published in the Pantheon, coming out June 2019. We're not quite sure of the name of it yet. Um, we're still hashing that over. But, um, you know, they just went to market. Uh, my publisher called me and, and said, um, we launched the book. And I said, oh, good. What does that mean? <laughs> and she said she met in front of a board of uh Bonds and Noble, Amazon, oh, wow. and then I blacked out after that. She named a list of, uh, you know, people that buy books. Uh, apparently, there was a woman from England that she uh, bought the book for to be published in England. It's going to be published all over the world, and uh, it's exciting. You know, it's, the reason I wrote the book is because of all the changes that I've seen. It's a fishing memoir, and, you know, I, I start off with, uh, one of my chapters is called Not a Clue in a Conger, you know, going out searching for striped bass and ending up catching a conger eel. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I love Did that. Did I stop fishing that night? No, I went back for more torture. But, um, you know, and, and just the changes I've seen, the bait, mackerel, that's what's in the canal. That's why those striped bass are after the mackerel. I haven't seen mackerel around Martha's Vineyard in years. I used to be able to fill a bucket with mackerel in no time. Now, you know, on the jetties and the bridges. And we don't have the bait here anymore. So that's why the fishing on the vineyard isn't, that's my theory anyway. That's why, you know, I don't know if it's the migration of fish that come up or going around Buzzards Bay and through the canal, but I, I think they're following the bait. 
and we don't get the bait. That The bait's going through the canal instead of going around the vineyard like it's supposed to. <laughs> right. So when should people be looking out for your book? June 2019. Okay. I'm very excited oh, to read this. It's in, it's in production. It's in production. And anyone who visits your site will see that you graduated from the Pennsylvania Institute of Taxidermy. Mm-hmm. And you specialized in saltwater skin mounts. Uh-huh. So what exactly is a skin mount versus other mounts that people might see? Years ago, that's, they tried to do saltwater skin mounts, but they weren't very successful because they didn't know much about degreasing. So the, the skin mounts didn't really hold up. But the techniques that I learned in 1987, uh, the way, you know, the way to degrease the fish um, and you know, the inside body that I use, I've been very successful at using the actual skin of the fish compared to fiberglass reproduction. The fiberglass reproduction, they get the real, they get the fish and they put it in a mold. I mean, they put it in a base and they make a mold out of it. And then out of the, the fish gets thrown away and then out of that mold, they're able to reproduce, you know, many, many fish out of that mold. So, you know, there's none of the real fish that's in the final product. Also, you know, they used to use an enamel paint. Everything was very toxic back, you know, 40 years ago. An enamel paint, and so the organic, the the skin mount is organic, and the fish would, it breathed. It would actually swell and shrink a little bit, and the paints that they used were enamel paints, the kind that they paint a cow with. And so that would crack. Now the paints that I use are, um, they, everything's non-toxic. I use water acrylic paints and it kind of moves with the fish if, if the skin breathes a little bit. You know, I'm not talking about it moves a lot, but you can't see it with the naked eye, of course. Right. But um, so I've been really successful. And uh, for 30 years, I specialized in skin mounts. Um, you know, I get a lot of species um, that... Uh, yeah, a lot of unusual, you know, like sea robins and scop, not just big striped bass and bluefish. And the most exciting thing is that the Historical Museum of Martha's Vineyard came to me, and they're buying my collection for the museum. Wow, how recent was that? When did they approach you? Um, probably about six or eight months ago. And uh, they've come to my studio, and they've measured the fish. So they're going to take one bass, one bluefish, one sea robin, one scup, one black thing. You know, one of every species that I've mounted over the years that I have in my collection. Is that in Eggertown? No, you know, well, it, yes, it is in Eggertown right now, but they bought the old marine hospital, which is on the lagoon in Vineyard Haven. It's way up on a hill. And if you come to the island on the ferry boat, I think you can see it. It's um, this great big building, and they're still working on it. But once they get that open, uh, it's going to be beautiful. And, you know, the one that they have right now in Egatown is really difficult to get to. The parking's terrible. It's, so this is so exciting. You know, I'm really excited about it. Well, that'll be awesome. Congratulations. Thank you. I mean, you know, I, I can't um, ask for a better ending to being in my basement up to my elbows in fish guts for 30 years. <laughs> so excited. So what sparked your interest in going to school for that? Well, I was in I was in the um, restaurant business. I was a waitress. And um, for one thing, I thought, I missed the big blitz. Uh, uh, the, it's called the Columbus Day Blitz that happened in, um, what year was that? Oh, 
let's see, 70s, maybe early 80s, this huge bass blitz, blitz happened. People were catching 50-pound bass, and um, you couldn't you couldn't get a daily pin during the derby with a 50-pounder because there were so many 50-pounders. I went the next derby. We got some big fish, but I never got a 50. And um, I was waitressing that night, and so I thought, you know what? If I start my own business, then I can go fishing whenever I want. <laughs> Good way of no. <laughs> that didn't happen. <laughs> so, yeah, I was in the restaurant business for 25 years, and I was to the point where, you know, after waitressing, it was either get out of waitressing and get into the administration pot or get out. So I decided to jump out, and I thought the island really needed a taxidermist. There was one guy on the Cape. His name is Wally Brown. He's now uh, retired, and he specialized in um, fiberglass. And I so in 1984... My fishing buddy Jackie won the derby with a 48.3-quarter-pound uh, uh, striped bass, and I took second with a 45-pounder. And um, I wanted to have a mount done, but there was nobody doing skin mounts. So that was in 1984. So that's when I started to research maybe becoming a taxidermist and, you know, having uh, – Somebody who did skin mounts on the island. I thought it would be a. I thought it'd be rich and famous. That didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I thought there was a need for it, so I did some research and I packed up and went to the Pennsylvania Institute of Taxidermy. And luckily, they let me specialize just in fish, you know, in skin mounts. Um, now, if you want to go to taxidermy school, you have to do weasels and snakes and deer heads. <laughs> you know, you have to do the whole gamut. And it's over $30,000, and you have to be there for over six months. So for me, I was, you know, I was in the workforce. My current husband, we were just dating at the time. He stayed home and stoked the coal stove and uh, took care of my dogs. And uh, I packed up and went to taxidermy school. That's amazing. Yeah. I waitressed the first three years because I couldn't quit my job. So that was kind of difficult, you know skinning fish all day and then going to waitress at night. Your site also your site did note that you did some work for Jim Belushi, Bill Clinton yep. and for others around the world. Yeah, yeah. So Oh yeah, I have a couple of fish in China, I have a couple in England. I did a fish for Jim Belushi, Spike Lee. I did a crab that went into the White House for the Clintons. Wow. What was that experience like doing work for them? How did you get in touch with them, or how did they get in touch with you? They found me. Uh, and I didn't, you know, I didn't treat anybody any different than anybody else. You know, they brought their fish in, I did the work, and uh, when the fish was ready, uh, like when Bluetooth fish came in, you know, the guy that brought it into my shop was like, I, you know, I'm going to have it in two months, I'll give you extra money. I'm like, I wish I could do that. It's a nine-month process, you know. Yeah. If you want me to do it, it's going to take nine months if you more than any quicker, I'm sorry, I can't do it. I don't care how much money you can give me. It doesn't matter. So it was a long process. So I just put them in the, you know, in line and uh, got it done when, as soon as I could. Now, did you feel more pressure doing work for them than you would, say, a trophy mount for a tournament? No, I did every fish like it was important to even kids' first fish, you know, whether it was a sea robin or a scop, you know, that was – 13 inches, 12 inches long. I treated that as, as, as I treated anybody else's fish. 
That's awesome because it is their memory, and they're going to see it on the wall for as long as it's up there. Yeah, absolutely. And I have probably three years of unfinished work, not for clients, but for my things that I started. So, you know, if you're ever on the island, come, I'll give you a little tour. It's yeah, I would love that. Yeah. I wanted to ask you about um, growing up on the vineyard. We spoke a little bit about it, um, but the, were you on the island your whole life? And what was No, that I came here when I was 18, and uh, so I guess it's just about my whole life. And I didn't fish for the first eight, uh, ten years. You know, I was just young and a waitress at the Black Dog and many of the restaurants on the island. And, uh, you know, see, I, you know I'm, I didn't want to leave. This is a great place. What attracted you to come there? When I left home, I went to Provincetown first, and that was cool, because I wanted to be an artist, you know, painting pictures on the side of the road. But, um, I don't know, I, I didn't seem to connect with Provincetown. And then I met a couple of guys, and they said, do you want to go to Martha's Vineyard? So I, I landed here, and um, I got hooked up with the art community and, you know, the young people. A lot of people I'm still friends with. People that I met that first year on the island, I'm still friends with. Wow, that's really cool. And what a great place to be, a, you know, a young, single, 18-year-old girl with not a lot of life experience. And uh, it's a, just a good, safe place. You know, in those days, we hitchhiked everywhere. And, of course, the island wasn't as crowded. You've seen that um, it's obviously now become, I mean, it always has been a destination for so many, but... Now, when Jaws came out and people right. are coming to the island to see the Jaws Bridge and right. things like that, how have you been able to navigate through that? And, of course, you've taken advantage of um, being able to guide people in your taxidermy and making money from their people coming on their trips. Right. How has that really changed your experience living on the vineyard? You know, I don't want to complain because I still – appreciate every day living on this beautiful island. You know, today I just took off, went to Chappie. You know, how lucky am I, you know? Just right. myself, me and my buggy. But I find a lot of times in the summer, I feel like I'm taken hostage. You know, like I, a lot of times, even now that I'm retired, I think, um, gee, I'd like to go to the beach. But, you know, everything's, it's, we don't have the access that we used to have. Right. We used to be able to go to any beach we want. Now there's lock gates everywhere. You have to have special stickers to go to special beaches. I ended up going to the drawbridge a lot because it's close to home. You know, Tristan and I, my husband's name is Tristan, you know, I say, oh, maybe we should go out to this. You know, we can't get in anywhere because we didn't make a reservation. There's no parking. Forget going to Eggertown. I used to be able to, like, just go to the dock and hang out and right. you know, see if it's beneficial. And you can't park in Eggertown in the summertime. So I don't mean to complain because I think I'm still very lucky. So that process of taking people out for guiding on the beach, what did you, did you have them meet you in Egertown you take the ferry over together or do you have them meet you on Chappie? No, most of the time I'd, I'd, I'd pick them up at the park and ride. I mean, if they were from Vineyard Haven, I'd pick them up at their, wherever they were renting or their home. But okay. um, most of the time I'd pick them up at the park and ride in Egertown, leave their car there, hop in my car, take the boat over. I mean, I did other guiding. If there was one guy who knew what he was doing, I could take him up to Gay Head or, you know, Lobsterville. But, you know, it would be backpacking. So it's hard to do that with four people that don't know what they're doing. Most of the novices are take Chappie. 
And then I don't take people to my, like, little sneaky spots. <laughs> Your honey holes. No, no way. Because, there's, you know, there's limited pot. I never take them to private property because I have some commissions on private properties. Right. My husband's a landscaper, so every time he gets a job, I'm like, is it on the water? Is it on the water? Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the one you've got to fish on this island. You know, you've got to have little sneaky places. Right. Because I've never taken anybody to private properties. Because even if they promise, well, we'll never come here again, they do. You know? right. So I only took them to uh, places that they could get to that were public. Menemsha, Beach, Lobsterville, Chappaquiddick, uh, sometimes Gayhead if it was like, you know, one person that had all their own gear and really knew what they were doing. I treat, you know, I've, I've taken people that have fished for years, but they never knew how to fish eels. So I've t- taught them how to fish eels. Or they fished all their life in lakes, but they didn't know saltwater fishing. Talking back about that derby, um, is that really the only tournament that you fish, or do you ever join other tournaments on the vineyard? Well, I'm also a child member of the Mountains and the Surfcasters, and we started uh, maybe about 10 years ago, we started a tournament with Nantucket. So once a year, we um, it's an island-to-island tournament. So once a year, they come here, and then the following year, we go there. And we host, like I'll host somebody here will stay at my house, and I take them fishing. And then the following year, I'll fish Nantucket with them. We call it the Nantucket Cup. Nantucket it's with um, a couple of guys, a guy from Nantucket named, um, oh, God, I don't know what we were, Scott Whitlock. And a, a member of our surfcaster group called uh, named uh, Victor Colantonio. Um, they met at Ground Zero for uh, 9/11. Wow. Each living on the island, and they just decided to um, see if they could start this tournament for camaraderie. Yeah. Um, are they still involved in the tournament? Oh yeah, oh yeah. But other than that, I don't do a lot of tournaments. You know, I I, I, I just oh, oh I do the I, I've done the catch and release fly rod tournament with the Rod and Gun Club a few times. You know, that's a so you do days. some fly, fly fishing? Yeah, I do a little bit of fly fishing. I'm not great at it. Surf casters are the worst fly fishing. <laughs> our body language, our body memory is totally opposite than fly fishing because your body technique is totally opposite. You know, like when I cast my lure, I do a big semicircle and I plant my lure towards the horizon and... The lure pulls my line out. Fly fishing, you do this stop. You know, you stop in the back and stop in the front. The fly, the line carries the fly. So it's a totally different technique. I don't know why there's not more women uh, serve casters. I don't think it has anything to do with gender. It's definitely a lot more mellow. It's a lot more relaxing, I think, for some people. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely the lures are a lot less intimidating. Right. I know... I hate dealing with treble hooks and trying to get that out of a bass's mouth because they swallow the same pole. So, (laughs) you know, I think the thing is, you know, I was was more of a a bass fisherman, which makes it, you know, stalking bass in the nighttime. Right. So I guess, you know, I'm so lucky that I live on Mount Virginia because if I lived in New Jersey or Connecticut, I wouldn't have been able to wander around the beaches by myself at night. Right. You know, we're safe in a safe place. So, you know, I thought nothing of grabbing my fishing rod and wandering around by myself in the middle of the night. That's a very good point. And um, 
what was I going to say? I had a train of thought and I just lost it. But oh, gee, that never happens to me. <laughs> <laughs> um, but definitely that about just surf casting and um, rather than fly fishing, you can yes. really go out almost in any condition. Right. Um, if the wind's howling, you can't really be in a, with a fly rod. That's, you know, that's the thing. You know, people said to me, Janet, when you pick up that fly rod, you will never pick up a surf rod again. Not, you know. <laughs> there's, I, there's nothing I love more than a 15-knot wind in my face and big crashing surf and throwing out a three-ounce lure. You know? I love that. Yeah. Overcast. Um, and I do love fly fishing, but it is, it's a lot more delicate. You know, it's like you have to have, well, for me especially, I know fly fishermen who could fish in a pretty stiff wind, but not me. You know, I'm not that good at it. And, and that's really, something they're doing their whole life. Yeah. And I've already hurt my body. You know, my back is bad, my shoulder's bad, so I hurt myself when I go fly fishing. Yeah, it's definitely, it's this um, motion, like you said, you get so used to the motion of surf casting. It's definitely mm-hmm. something that is just, very unique. Right. And every year I say, I'm going to use my, I've used my fly fishing rod about, you know, I could count them on two hands this year. And every year I say, I'm going to get more into my fly rod, I'm going to get more into my fly rod. But somehow I just keep picking up that surf rod. And, you know, I don't have to think about it. You know, if I go out tired, I can just cast and retrieve and don't have to think. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. You just kind of, you can think about other things. It's, Therapeutic. Nice. Right. Right. But maybe, maybe next year I'll get more into my fly rod. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Like springtime, you know. Yeah. Focus on the derby that's coming up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's a wonderful thing you're doing. Good luck with your po- podcast. I hope you can edit out all the bloopers and stuff. No, thank you. I really want it to be a, just a conversation, asking some questions here and there that I really wanted to focus on and, and just that I wanted to know as well. Yeah. But also for whoever wants to listen. Um, yeah. um, I, just, I got good news, my friend. I fish with a guy named Mike Laptu. He's a photographer and an underwater uh, photographer. He's a great guy. He's been coming oh, yeah. for many years uh, doing photographs of me. He just, um, I'm on the front of Fisherman Magazine. Oh my goodness, congratulations. Uh, you just got that news now? I just got it. Yeah, I just found it. And I, 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 I'm a, I get my magazine, but I haven't got it yet. I just went on the internet, and it's, I mean, all three, um, you know, they saw it in New Jersey and uh, New England, and there was another place, too. So it's, like, all over the place. It's, uh, so I'm on the cover. It has nothing to do with me. I didn't do anything but fish. My friend, <laughs> it's, it's, he's the one. He takes fabulous photographs of me. And he says he likes to come and take photographs of me because I just don't stop. <laughs> That's so funny. Playboy or anything like that. Just like <laughs> magazine. I'll take it. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you so much. I had an awesome time talking with you. Thank you. You too. And good luck in the derby. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Janet. And I hopefully we'll talk soon. My pleasure. Bye.